talk about prayer for the next few weeks. Prayer is an interesting um, thing to, to talk about. Uh, the Bible has a lot of things to say about prayer. Um, the interesting thing about prayer is that we all know we need to pray more, right? I don't think there's anyone in here that's like, oh, I didn't think so. Um, but I would suggest that I think we all know we need to pray more. And the difficult thing about uh, preaching a series on prayer is that, that I don't want it to be viewed as some drive-by guilt trip. Uh, because if I can guilt you into prayer, how long is that going to last? Maybe a day, two days. For some of you, like this afternoon, you know. My prayer is that I can't, I, I won't guilt you into this. So I'm going to try to be as careful as I can. Um, I, I think there's a different approach to take when we're talking about, about prayer that can motivate us to be a people of prayer. And I think that would be to, it, it's going to be how we view God, how we view God and that how God views us, that God delights in us and that God is a God who does respond I think that if we can view prayer through those two different ideas that um, God delights in you and that God responds to his people, then I pray that it would motivate me personally. I ain't talking about none of y'all, right? Talking about myself, that that can motivate me to be a better person who is devoted uh, to prayer. Um, we're gonna talk about one of, I think one of the, one of the best prayers aside from Jesus's prayers, but one of Paul's greatest prayers found in Ephesians chapter three, the very last two verses, 20 and 21, uh, we call this a doxology. Doxa is just the Greek word that comes from glory. So it's really Paul started a prayer in verse 14 and is ending his prayer with this doxa or this, this praise to give glory back to God. It's, it's what we would call back in the Southern church, a praise break. It, it was, now I know none of y'all know what that is. Y'all just gonna have to YouTube it later, okay? It's when somebody gets real excited and just does a praise break, okay? And so I think this is how I've always viewed these last two verses in Ephesians chapter three is this is Paul's praise break, giving glory back to God. Ephesians chapter one and three is enriched with a lot of theology and a lot of who is God. So he starts his letter to the Ephesians making sure they have a right understanding of who God is. And he ends the last three chapters of Ephesians with here's how this works in your life. Here's how we practice this in your life. And tucked right into the middle of his book or his letter to the Ephesians is this praise break, is this into a prayer that he gives to the saints of God. And it reads Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Before I exegete through this, let's pray together that God would open up our ears and our hearts to hear and receive his word. Father, 
I thank you so much, Lord, that you have spoken, though they may be my words, my voice, but it is your word that we just heard. We just heard the incredible attributes of who our God is tucked in just two verses. God, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. May our minds and our hearts collide together and not just be hearers of your word, but be doers also, Lord. God, we just ask that you would be mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about prayer, I want to just consider this thought that one of the best ways um, to learn about prayer or to practice prayer is not by necessarily studying best ways to pray. I would suggest that one of the best ways to learn and to study about prayer is to study about who God is. Ephesians is loaded with Paul giving us a lot of prayers in this. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, there's a prayer that Paul prays over the church that they would have an understanding of who God is. Like I mentioned a moment ago in chapter 3, verse 14, this text that we find ourselves in is just the end of a prayer where Paul begins to pray that the church would have strength. In fact, I'll read it in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So what will happen, he says, when he answers, and he gives the answer to the prayer request for strength. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then our text ends with this coffee cup verse and to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The prayer requests in this prayer are sandwiched between who God is. Verse 14 and 15, if you didn't notice, says Paul describes God as the Father who every family in heaven is joined with and is named. And in verse 21, he says that he who is able to do far more. The point that I think Paul is making, the emphatic point that I want to make to you, is that effective prayer always starts with God, and it always ends with God. It always starts with acknowledging the glory and the majesty and the attributes of who God is, and it always ends with who God is. I think sometimes when we're praying, let me just rephrase that one more time. I think sometimes when I'm praying, I try to like get everything out as quick as I can. And I just kind of forget this whole, you know, who God is. It's like we try to rush through our prayers and sometimes we wonder why our prayers aren't effective. It may be because our prayer life is so me-centric. 
You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, it's just so me devoted. Like, my prayer is about me. I've got to get as much as this out as I can in the quickest time that I can, as if I don't have any other time in the day to pray. I'm only going to set aside these 130-second increments of time per day to get as quick, as many as words as I quickly as can. And we wonder why our prayers are not effective. I think what Paul is bringing to our attention here, that the effective prayer begins with who God is and ends with God. Our prayers begins with who we are. And if God answers, they end with who God is. Oh, now we thank you, Jesus. Ha! Now I give you glory, God. You, look, you've answered my prayer. And Paul's like, no, no, no. I'm thanking God. I'm giving him glory before the answer even comes. I'm acknowledging who God is before I even make my request known to him. And I'm talking about how good he is to me and how good he is just being God. And I'm going to end with that also. Paul is just trying to redirect our me-centric prayers and tell us an effective prayer begins with who God is and ends with God. And it doesn't wait for the answer to come for you to end your prayer with your response in giving God the glory. In these two verses, there are two truths about God. Like I said, I think the best way to motivate our hearts to, be, to have a life devoted to prayer is really to, to look at who God is. Who, who is God? What is, what is God like? What is God's heart for? Paul gives us a, a simple glimpse in this the first thing that he would tell us, that he tells us is that how God responds, that God responds to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. This is a statement of the power and the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence is a deep theological word that we use to say that God is all powerful. In fact, there's the three O's, omnipotence, omniscient, and omnipresent, that God is all powerful, that God is all knowing, and that God is at all times, at all places. And right here, Paul gives us one of these powerful O's, one of the powerful doctrines of God, and that God is all powerful, and that he does respond with his power. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 16. You could just jot that down. We were in Jeremiah last week. In Jeremiah 32, 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Now, when God asks a question, he ain't dumb. He knows the answer. You tracking with that? When God says, is there anything too... Uh, too hard for me. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question to get you to think on the power and the omnipotence of who God is. Jeremiah responds, and he responds rightly in verse back in 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too hard for you, my God. The angel of the Lord in Luke's gospel chapter one comes to Mary and tells this tiny little girl that you're going to have a baby and you ain't even going to touch a man. And Mary gives the right response. How can that be? Because I took biology. 
And the angel of the Lord looks at Mary and says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no, because he is all powerful. He is omnipotent. There is nothing too hard that our God can't do. And if that is true, and if he can respond to our prayers, then there is nothing too hard that our God can't do. And that means there is no prayer that we can pray where God goes, you know what, I think you got me. You know what, I think y'all finally been stumped. But that old thrower down there asking me all these crazy things. No, God is all powerful. He can take it. We can also look at the God-man Jesus if we want to see what this looks like in a tangible way of the God-man being omnipotent. Jesus also carrying that same attribute in his earthly ministry when he would tell a fig tree to stop being a fig tree and curses it and it dies. That's some power that you and I, we now we can kill a plant. Come on now. On my green thumb or brown thumbers, right? But can you tell it to stop being alive and it withers like that? No, you ain't got that power. Jesus has the authority and the power to be on a boat with some scared boys as the winds and the waves are crashing against the boat and just tells the storm, stop, and it stops. He looks at his best friend who's been in a grave in a tomb for four days who's been dead, and he tells Lazarus, you're not allowed to be dead anymore, and Lazarus rises from the grave. That's some power. Anybody ever been on a boat and told the storm to stop being a storm? Anybody ever looked at a tree and said, curse you and it withers away? Anybody ever seen somebody who's been dead for days and tell them to stop being dead and they've been raised from the dead? And you know what? Thank God, right? Because if you and I flowed in that kind of power, things would go wrong really quickly drive with me on the highway and somebody pulls out in front of me. God, open the earth and swallow them whole. <laughs> now y'all know the unsanctified version of me. Ephesians 3, this power of God works infinitely beyond us. And he says, now to him who is able, now this word able carries the weight that he has the ability to, to act upon what he says. He just doesn't think about it. He just doesn't talk about it. He can do it. He is able to do these things. Y'all ever been given a false promise? Or maybe you've been given a promise where you know that person will never be able to deliver. Like it'd be like me telling you, I'm going to give you a million dollars. <laughs> Y'all know that's a lie from the devil. I don't have the ability to carry that promise out. But my God is able to do that. My God is able. He has the ability to carry out what he says he can do. There is no short supply when it comes to God because he is able and he is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. He's willing to respond to our prayers. 
He's willing to respond to the things that we ask him to do. And what about the things that we don't even know how to pray about? What about our fears? What about the burdens? What about like those things that you know you have lurking in your life and you just don't even have words to say? Well, this is where the omniscience of God comes into play, that he is all-knowing. He knows the prayers that you need to pray, and he will answer those prayers before you even have to pray them. How do I know this? Because he is able to do far more than we can think or ask. So the things we can't even think or ask, the things that we can't even think that we even need in the future, they've already been prayed, and God's already responded. That is a power and a knowledge that our God has. God is able. He is powerful enough to save your child, to save your spouse, to save your marriage. And I would suggest not even just to save them, but to make your child be a missionary and an evangelist to save other wayward children. He is able and powerful enough to do that. He's able and powerful enough to save your spouse. He's able and powerful enough to save your marriage and not just to save your marriage, but so that your marriage can be a reflection to other marriages and they are saved. It's a reciprocating effect of the power and majesty of who God is and what he does. God is able. Now this begs a question before I move on in this text that I feel like I should ask, what are you asking God to do? What are you asking God? If God is powerful, if God is able, if God is who he says he is, that he can do all that you can ask or think far more, exceedingly, abundantly more than those things you could ask. If he is this powerful God, if he is able, omnipotent, omniscient, then what are you asking God to do in your life? Now, this is not a green card or, or a blank check for you to ask for the million dollars or for the, the prosperity to rain down on you. What are you asking him that aligns with the kingdom and the heart of God? Marriage needs to be saved. That's a kingdom prayer. Uh, children, lost loved ones need to be saved. That's a kingdom prayer. Healing, that's a kingdom prayer. What are you asking God to do? And that's a challenge for me because sometimes I am um, shortchanging the outlook of the powerful God because I just sometimes don't think he is too powerful enough to do the things that I want him to do. I want him to do something magnificent and glorious and so impactful but sometimes I, I harvest those prayers and just tuck them away. To me, this is a challenge that Paul presents to the church. Challenge God. Ask for those things. He is powerful and he is able and he will respond. Imagine if we did begin to pray big prayers. Remember, God answers and he delights in his people, and he will 
respond to his people. Imagine if we began to pray those big prayers. Imagine if we did pray, God, tear down the idols of this state. Imagine if we did pray for every single person to come to the Lord in this city, the true Jesus Christ. Imagine if we prayed for more people to be laborers in the kingdom of God. Just imagine if we began to pray these big prayers. Do you think God would answer? Because he is able to do the impossible. I'm reminded of a passage in Luke chapter 18. This is one of my favorites. This, this is like a, it's an interesting verse in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 15. There's a story about a blind man. And this has always captivated me, this story. Um, Jesus is walking by and the blind man, he's, well, he's blind. Jesus asked him, I would think, and it's, it's a comical question, but it's also like one of those questions like, are you for real, Jesus? He asked, he asked the blind man, what can I do for you? Is anybody, anybody not troubled by that question? Really? It's like if you walk in a hospital and somebody's dying and they just need to be plugged into oxygen and you ask them, hey, what can I do for you? Gee, I don't know. Plug the oxygen tank in. Gee, I don't know, Jesus. I'm blind. You know? It's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a question, though, not because Jesus is trying to be some sarcastic, you know, just trying to jab at the guy. <laughs> You've been blind all your life. What can I do for you? It's a question that Jesus is testing his faith. Ask me what you want me to do. And there's the conundrum that so many of us face. Jesus is doing the same thing. Ask for me what you want me to do. But we've just got our prayer requests harvested because we're too scared to ask them. What if he doesn't respond? What if he doesn't answer them? Man, we just out here asking for the little things. And here Jesus is challenging us. And Paul is challenging us with this prayer. Ask for the big things. Ask for the challenging things. Ask me to do what only I can do. Ask the Almighty God to do what only He can do. And thank God the blind man's response was, Give me my sight. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't give him something small that he thinks he needed just to like help him just for the day. Oh, you know what I actually think you need? I know you need your sight, but let me give you a pillow because I see you've been laying on this rocky road. That's not another thing. That's what the church does. We think Jesus is going to give us like the lame thing or the small thing. But God is able to do exceedingly abundantly far more than we can ask or think because he is all powerful and he is omnipotent. The negative effect of this, I know that sounds very traumatic, but there's a negative effect to this. If you are, if you are a believer in Christ, this is, there is no negative effect at all. There's a challenge for you 
to pray, to ask God to do incredible things in your life. But if you are a non-believer, there's a negative effect to this. The negative effect of this is that God will do exceedingly abundantly all that you can ask or think. Let me break it down for you real quick. If, if I'm a non-believer, I have rejected Jesus. You know what God's gonna do? Give you far more exceedingly, more than you can ask or think. And I'm not talking about giving you what, giving you the grace. I'm talking about the eternal separation. You constantly saying no to Jesus, no to God. Well, guess what? God will also give you far more exceedingly abundantly all that you could ask or think. So there's a negative effect of this. Now, I don't know what you think about hell. Uh, some people think hell is like some figurative place or some literal place. I don't know where you land on that. I, I tend to lean that it's a literal place that is set aside for those who believe. But let's just pause and dissect for some of you who believe that hell is a figurative place, well, figurative language means that there's a symbol that's greater than the thing that which you are pointing at. So even if you think it's figurative, the symbolic language means that it is still a tormenting place. And so if anything for us, who are not believers in this room, this should woo our hearts that we could experience this almighty God would give us these blessings that are promised to his people. Now he goes on and he says, according to the power within us. This is a play on words. The God who is able is himself the God and the power at work within us. And this is good news because this is for those of us who are weak. When I read this, I think, well, maybe I'm supposed to feel strong, right? I mean, you got the power of God working um, within you. You would think that that means you're supposed to feel some like strong, mighty Christian. But you go around quoting scriptures everywhere, praying for people, witnessing to every single person you come in contact with. Well, this is not what this is implying. This just means that as you are weak, the power goes through you and the power is working within you for the weak. In fact, if you are the strong, then God's power is not being made through you. And I like the word that he uses according to the power that is working within you. Now, according to, here's what this means. If I go to a restaurant and I leave a tip, We'll go, hi. We'll go, I'm going to leave $15. That's cheap. Let's just say I did that, all right? That's not according to, that's just what my pocket has. And that is taking power out of my pocket, right? Now, some of you poor young folks, y'all know what I'm talking about. You have removed a resource from me. If Elon Musk, if he leaves a $1,000 tip, that ain't nothing for him because he's the world's richest man. That's according to his wealth. 
You didn't take any of his power. You didn't take any of his wealth because there is an infinite wealth with this man. Likewise, with God, our father, when God gives us the power and that power is working within you, you aren't stripping God of his power because there is an unlimited supply of his power. And so it's just according to, it's just this thing that is a cyclical thing that is constantly being poured out within you. So when God gives you the power that you need for the day, it isn't like God's like, you know what? I'm tapped out for the day. Come back tomorrow. I'll give you more. No, it's according to his power. There's more power for you through the day as you need it. You can't tap God out of his power because he is able and he is all powerful. Now look at not only how he responds, but he ends this in verse 21 with this idea of God's worthiness and his glory. Verse 20 starts and 21 starts. Now to him who is able, 21 starts to him be glory. I would suggest that if you hear anything about prayers, that prayer, the purpose of prayer is to bring glory to God once you've experienced who God is, you bring him glory. We're always giving glory to something. We're always desiring, I would suggest, for glory for ourselves. There's something inside of us that craves the attention, that craves being esteemed. I mean, don't some of us like to be recognized for our work? Don't we want some recognition for the housework we do or, or a performance that we just did or a job performance that we just did. It's a hungry, it's what the fall of mankind was all about, this craving that we would be the center of the universe. We have a, an obsession with social media and celebrities. And, and if I post something on social media and within 30 minutes, I don't have a like, I'm gonna delete it. It is this weird thing in our society that prayerfully we haven't fell victim to in here, but it is something that it is enticing to us. It's always a bait that the enemy uses, that the world is about you. The world is about your glory. The world is about how you can be more successful, how you can have the best relationships, how it's all about you. It is the cultura mantra, you do you. And in the South, boo-boo. It's what we tell our children. You will be the rising star athlete. Okay. You will be the next celebrity. You can be whatever you want to be if you just do what? Put your mind to it. It's a lie that the enemy has fed our culture. It is this self-exalting glory that we've been fed ever since we were little kids. When mama said that you were the best at everything, but your mama lied. 
Welcome to church. (laughs) And thus, it has worked itself out to where now we crave and desire for all of the glory that life would be about me and my comfort. Paul strips this idea from an early church in the first century that this prayer that you're praying, this life that you are living is not about you, that the prayers are not even necessarily about you even. It's how can God get the glory from this? Which answers the question of what happens when God doesn't respond to your prayer like you think he should respond. The answer is God will get the glory somehow, some way. God didn't give you the success you asked for. Maybe God didn't bring the healing or maybe God didn't do the things that you were imploring him to do, but still God answered and he responded in a way that he will get the glory. Our prayers and the purposes of our prayers are that God gets the glory, not that we can say, look how awesome my prayer was. God answered it. The purpose of the prayer is that God will get the glory. So may God strip down the idol of our life and of our culture and the mantra of you do you and may our lives be more about to God be the glory. I love how Paul ends this prayer as we all end prayers. Amen. Amen was a Jewish What the Jews would do in ancient Israel when they heard the truth about God's word, they would say, amen, so be it. It is so how I grew up in the church. I know you right. That's Southern language. Let it be. Stamp of approval. I'm glad that's the final word of the prayer that Paul uses. It's not that Paul says God is able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think. Well, maybe. Gee, I sure hope so. I kind of wish he would. Because that's how we end our prayers. God, I've asked you to do the miraculous in Cedar City. Maybe. I hope you will. And we put a period on it. God, I've asked you to save some marriages that I know are broken. God, I've I've asked you to redeem and reconcile some broken situations. Maybe you'll do it. How sad is that? Paul is exuding this confidence that he has in the almighty God that I know God is able to do far more exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power of Christ Jesus that is working himself within the church for the glory of Jesus Christ in the church. Amen. It is done. So 
be it. Paul is giving us this confidence that he has in the Almighty God. May our prayers be centered on this Almighty, powerful, omnipotent Creator God who is asking us to ask for these big things. And he's imploring us, what do you want from me? It's like, it's like the, the, the judge, the wicked judge, and, and, and the lady who has lost everything, and she's just asking the judge to bring something to her, and she nags, and she persists, and she nags, and finally the judge is like, fine, have it. And Jesus responds by saying, this judge is wicked. How much greater is the Father in heaven that when you ask for things, he will give it to you? What are you asking God to do in your life? What are we asking as a church? What are we asking as a church for God to do here? What are we asking God to do here? Do we want normal do we want God just to give us the pillow so we can lay our head down and I'll, maybe I'll get my sight later? Are we asking God, you know what, just, I'm comfortable here, this is fine. We don't need anybody else to join our church. That's a small offensive prayer to a God who is able to do far more above all that we can ask or think. Or are we asking him, God, save every soul in this city and fill every church with your people and send more church planters to Utah. Those are some audacious prayers to be praying. God, save the lost. God, redeem and reconcile the broken marriages. Those are the prayers that God is waiting for us to ask. Why? Because God is able to do far more above we can ask or think according to the power that is working within us, the church, and to the glory be to God in Christ Jesus through his church. Amen. Amen.